Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ruby for All. Julie, what is up? We are fostering a seven-week-old puppy. Oh, what kind of puppy? I need details. Black lab, almost all black. There's like one white paw or like two white paws. And it sleeps through the night, which is great. It is teething though. So we're having to redirect. And it's also not potty trained yet. So we are having lots of fun (laughs) with that. I'm sure. I love dogs. I don't have one. I will probably have one in the foreseeable future. But I'm not ready yet because I'm a mess. Can't take care of something else right now. But that's awesome. We'll have to keep checking in with you on that because I have worked with foster dogs before and I love them. So that makes me feel warm and happy on this dark, rainy, cold, dumb day. Oh, I'm sorry. You're having that kind of weather. Yeah, it's sunny out where we are. So hopefully that can push over to you. I'm sure it will. We don't have much rain, but when it is, it's rainy. Mm -hmm. But the sun will be back soon and I cannot wait. But today, you and I are wrapping up our February series on Ruby methods. Are you excited? Excited. What do you think about this series? We talked a little bit about it before, but what do you think about it? Because I want people to know how I felt about it. <laughs> I honestly felt like the end of the call, I didn't know as much as I thought I did. And I do appreciate being able to broadcast that I don't know everything. Learning it on the fly has been really nice. So hopefully people realize like you don't have to know everything. And there's documents where you can look up what you don't know. And I come off this every episode feeling an idiot, but I have learned. And you're not. And I'm not. And I've learned some (laughs) things and I've had a lot of fun doing it. And I'm okay with not knowing the answer because no one is a walking dictionary. So let that be our message today. Don't have to know everything. You can still do what we do. I also really like the support we're having with people helping with explaining things that we didn't get it correctly, but like the questions that we posed to our listeners. That was very nice. Yep. It's nice, especially when there's things that are based in context. Like for instance, we went back and forth on our hash episode about using an integer for a key. Turns out with using the hash rocket syntax, that was okay, but when you're assigning it like a symbol, like we do now, that doesn't work, but you can still use it as the key. So that was interesting to know that like, oh yeah, well, it used to be a thing where when we used hash rockets, which we don't anymore, that was cool. So I've enjoyed it. I've learned several things. I've changed, you know, a few things about the way I've accessed. And I even, I mentioned the other day, I was like, oh, I used this method when we learned exactly what it did. And I was like, cool, I get it now. And one of our listeners also mentioned that they used one of our methods in a interview. Oh, really? I didn't see that. That's so cool. Well, today we are going to talk about enumerables and objects and a few other random things. And the other week I told you I couldn't explain what an enumerable was. And now I can because I learned. Let's hear it. <laughs> so an enumerable is a module that provides a collection of methods for working with collections of data like arrays and hashes. And it's a module that's included in many built-in Ruby classes, such as arrays and hashes. And it provides a set of methods that allow you to iterate over and manipulate data in that collection. And one of the key benefits of enumerables, and this is what tied it together for me, is that it provides a consistent and familiar API to access different types of collections. So that means that you can write code that works with arrays and hashes and other types of collections and not have to worry about the specific implementation details. 
And enumerables can also be used to implement your own collections as long as your class implements the each method, which yields each element of a collection to a block. And so what tied it together for me was the enumerable methods are included in these collections. And what they allow you to do is have a very familiar set of methods that you can use regardless if it's an array or a hash, like map and select and reject and sort and group by. So these methods that you can use across different types of collections are contained in the enumerable modules. And it's almost like a way of drying up. This is how I'm thinking about it, at least. It's like, if I have code in one controller and code in another controller, I'm going to pull into a module, into a concern and share it between both. So that way that there's a familiar API with accessing these things from both of the controllers. And that's what the enumerable module is doing, or methods, at least in my brain, is that it's like, hey, there are certain types of methods that you want to use regardless of the collection type, and those are what's stored in enumerable. Nice. So aside from array and hash, is there other objects that might pull the enumerable in? I don't know. I'm thinking like set or something. Or maybe set's not a class. I don't know. I I don't don't know much about set. Set is a defined thing in Ruby. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's not like a core class. You could probably create a set but that's definitely like a concept from other languages that I've heard of. And that I don't remember what exactly makes a set different from the other types of things that we have. But I think what it kind of boils down to is that if you can iterate through something with dot each, that makes it a collection and collection can have access to innumerable methods. So my research, I only came up with the array and hash collection. I'm sure there's more, but like it's saying you can, implement your own collection as long as it responds to each. So active record collections is a good example of something that you can access, like you can use map and select and reject and sort and group by with active record collections, but it's not an array or a hash necessarily. It's its own special object, but it has, I'm assuming based on what I researched that it is access all these innumerable methods. Nice. I know it does for, actually I know it does. (laughs) Do you happen to know then if say a method is in the enumerable module and it's being included into like an array class, does the array class itself also have that same method? So it's using the method in enumerable. Okay. That's why I kind of said like, if I wanted to share commonality between two different controllers, I put it in concern. That's, I think the way to look at the enumerable module, it's built in Ruby classes that are shared between collections that provide a similar API. So array doesn't necessarily write its own version of map and hash doesn't necessarily write its own version of map. They might, I don't know. But what my understanding is, is that the way you map over a collection is stored in enumerable. And regardless of what that collection is, that's what it uses. I'm sure under the hood in the C code, which you and I can't really read, or I'm sure we could read if we wanted to, but can't at this exact moment, We don't know exactly what's going on, but that is my understanding of it. Cool. Well, thanks so much for explaining the enumerable module. It has been kind of one of those things that I needed to figure out what it does, but I never got around to doing so. Yes. And I probably knew it at one point and (laughs) forgot, but now I know. So yeah, you want to go over some of these things we got? The first one on our list is Tally. And what Tally does is it returns a hash containing the counts of equal elements. Let me see if I can pull up an example. If you had, for example, an array of A, B, C, A, B, C, C, then when you call Tally on it, you can get this nice hash that 
the keys would be the elements A, B, and C. And then the values would be how many times it appeared in the array. I remember using this when I needed to solve some sort of a code war problem where I needed to know how many times something had appeared in the array. And it was can, a really quick way to pull that up. I can think of a good example for using this in a Rails app. And that would be, let's say you have a polymorphic record and let's call it sale because that's something kind of generic. So a user has sales, but because it's a polymorphic record, there's a different sale type on each of those records. So if I did user.sales and then I tally it the way I want to, I could get maybe a list of each type of sale and the count. And then maybe I could display it on a dashboard. It's like, you got 30 sales and here's how they're broken down. You brought up polymorphic though. Can you explain that real quick? Oh, I can explain it generically. I can't give you the deep, deep deeds. But basically, <laughs> a polymorphic record, and it belongs to a relationship, you have to have the sale ID. So if my sale belongs to a user, I would expect to have user ID on it. Mm -hmm. But what if there's different types of sales? So now I have to have a different model. So like, okay, these are B2B sales and these are B2C sales and these are only online sales or whatever. Now I have to have a different model for each one of those. But what if they all have the same data structure? Like I want the same data structure. I just want it to be for different types of things. So what you would do there is make the model generic or the table really generic, and you would use polymorphism to dynamically kind of set almost the type or what it belongs to or something like that. So if you had sales type and sales ID, it could be point to a specific type of record with that ID, and you could have another sales record with a different type pointing to a different object. It's almost a way of drying up your tables in a way. And that's, like I said, not a great explanation. Like I could give you a way when to use polymorphism. It's harder for me to explain it, but I know how to use it very much so in practice. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's another episode, different types of like polymorphism, single table inheritance, STI. Like these are all things that we could talk about one day. Oh, that's <laughs> a good idea. I'll write it down. Cool. So yes, that's tally. I like tally. I don't use it as much in practice, but I'm definitely using code wars. Okay. I think we talked about flat map in the array episode, but yes, we did. I like flat map a lot because and I think we even talked about kind of this type of example where let's say you have an array of an arrays and you want to map over everything in that collection and return one array back. Flat map is a basically a way to do flatten dot flatten dot map. It's a kind of like a shorthand for that. Flat map will automatically flatten the array and then map over it to do whatever you want it to do. And that's I a nice, learning, handy shorthand. I remember learning this in a code review that I had. I don't remember if I shared this, but I think it was my manager who saw that I had done like dot flatten, then dot map. And he was like, oh, there's a flat map. And so that's when I learned how to use that. That's exactly when I learned how to use it. When someone was like, hey, you don't have to call flatten dot map. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Andrew Mason, and I've got an amazing gem to tell you about, Avo. It helps you build content management systems and internal tools with Ruby on Rails incredibly fast. You don't need to deal with any CSS or JavaScript files as Avo takes care of all the UI work for you, resulting in a modern, mobile-first CRUD interface ready to deploy. 
Plus, it provides access to features almost every application needs, like actions, filters, search, sorting, active storage integration, dashboards, and much more. So if you're looking for an ultra-powerful and maintainable platform to build your next product or service, look no further. Avvo harnesses the power of Rails, Hotwire, Tailwind CSS, view components to provide you with a fast and easy-use stack the Rails way. Don't wait any longer. Visit avohq.io and give Avvo a try today. You won't regret it. But flattening arrays is something that we have to do. And I told you when we were doing the map episode that I map all the time. So it's a nice method to have in your back pocket that's kind of like, hey, yeah, I can make this a little more efficient and looks better in code view. It's more readable. Well, debatable. I mean, dot flatten, dot map, dot flat map, shout out Ruby, very readable. So <laughs> I like it. It's one of those nice handy ones to have in your back pocket. There's other ways to do it, but it's a nice way to kind of show that like, hey, yeah. I know another way to do this with less code, which is always good for me. Anyway, not for everyone. I like less code. <laughs> I like readability. And so FlatMap is very readable. Yes. Our next one is partition. And this, I haven't had a chance to use in practice, but if you have, let me know. Partition is kind of cool because you can pass in a block Let's say one of the ones that I use this on for Code Wars is if you were given an array of numbers, for example, and you wanted to partition them between odd and even, you can pass in a block and put down what you want to be in the first array. So like if you did, your block would be like element.even, then your first array that will get returned is all of the even numbers. And then the second array that gets returned would be the odd numbers. And so what you get back is an array of arrays, I believe, two arrays in that scenario. That's cool. Have you used I, it? I have. And I was like, as you were talking, I was trying to remember when I used it, but it was one of those methods where like, again, there are other ways to solve this. I'm pretty sure someone pulled it on me in code review. It was like, hey, you could actually use dot partition here and like save on this code. I was trying to find an example where I use it, but I couldn't find it while you were explaining it. But I've definitely used this before. With a block given returns an array of two arrays, the first having those elements for which the block returns a truth value and the other having all other elements. Yeah, so this would be like a great way to like, if you had an active record collection, and I mean, like I said, there are other ways to do this. Easy example is you have an active record collection and you want to partition it by active and inactive sales, maybe, if we're going back to our uh, sales yeah. example. So then you can get two arrays one with each of them doing what you want, instead of making two different, like setting up one array and mapping through to get the active sales and another to map through and get the inactive sales. Dot partition would be an easy way to split it right there. Thanks for bringing this up. This actually is a very good use case for my app that I was telling you on my side project that I had started working on. I have a questions model where I separate them on my page to questions that were answered and questions that were not answered. So this is like a really yeah. great way to just partition them that way. Nice. Yeah. I'm going to try that out. Yeah, that's a cool one. That's one of those ones that I don't think about grabbing at first, but maybe I will now because now I'm reading it and we just walked through that example and that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Cool. So next we got sort by. This one you probably used in Rails. But with a block given, it returns an array of elements of self sorted according to the value returned by the block for each element. The ordering of equal elements is indeterminate and may be unstable, which is good to know. So if we had an array of 
let's go back to our sales example. Let's say each sale has an amount on it. We could take those sales and sort them by the amount and then maybe display that to user like, hey, this month, these were your top sales. And you can do like dot sort, I think is actor. Now dot sort is Ruby too. I feel like sort, I don't know if you can pass in a, maybe we should look this up. I don't know if you can pass in a block, but it just sorts by some default. And if you that's wanted a, to sort it differently, then you can do sort by. That's what I thought as well. And then I started to think, I was like, but why wouldn't it accept a block? So let's find out if I can find it. So that looks like an array method. Yeah, you can pass sort a block. So returns a new array creating by sorting self. Comparisons of the sort will be done with the spaceship operator. And the block must implement a comparison value between A and B. Okay, so sort, it looks like specifically requires using the spaceship operator to make a comparison oh, in the block. that spaceship operator. Yeah, that damn spaceship operator <laughs> versus sort by, which is using like a specific key and specifically a numerator, which is sort returns an array. Okay. Yes. I think sort by is typically, unless you had an array of numbers, I would call sort. That's easily comparing A greater than B. Okay. Is B greater than C? Okay. And then going through like that versus if I'm using sort by, I'm sorting by some, usually in, in active record, I'm sorting specifically by some key on the records, like last active at or something like that. Right. Versus sort where you're like sorting like a list. I like this one. Send. Send invokes the method identified by a symbol and symbol is what you pass to send, passing it any argument specified. When the method is identified by a string, the string is converted to a symbol. So send is what you will often see people use when metaprogramming something. And I can give you a great example of this. In my component library that I've created, I use the action view tag helpers, which allow you to do like tag.div and then create a tag element in HTML, and pass it options and stuff. So what I do is I use a lot of inheritance in my component structure. And at the top level, there's one method that says tag.send, and then it passes it a list of options. So what I'm sending to tag is the name of the element that I want to use. And because I'm using this with everything that inherits from that, that way I can put in my subcomponent class, this element is a div or this element is a, a tag. And then whenever it uses the top level method, it sends that element to tag, which is the same way as doing tag.div, and then you send it options. Send, it's also a way to invoke methods that are private, which you don't want to do unless you're debugging. I'm gonna say that. Don't use send to get around private methods unless you need a great reason. Because a lot of times what people use send for is like maybe there's a private API, or if you put things in private, on a class, they're not supposed to be used by the things. And that to me as the developer means I can change whatever I want under this private line because it's only being used in this class and no one else should be using it. And if someone else is using it and you don't know about that, you wind up into trouble. So using send is definitely something that you need to do intentionally. And I use it a lot when I'm debugging where I'm like, okay, well, I need to try this private method in this class and it's a private method, but I'm debugging. I'm trying to walk through what happened here. So that's when I would definitely use send. But it's definitely like something that when you're metaprogramming, send is definitely something you're going to be using a lot of. That makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't want to use send and someone 
changes their private method and you're like, what? Right. So there's a counterpart to send called public send, which does not allow you to tap into private methods, but still does the same thing. That's a lot safer if you were going to put that code into your application, then using public send is a way to be like, hey, this is public API, but we have to call it like this. Do what you have to do. But using public send signifies to everyone that I'm not tapping into a private method here. I'm using a public method. I'm just using send because of metaprogramming or this or that or this other reason. So if you're going to use send, like I said, using targeting private methods is dangerous for a variety of reasons. So using public send, if you're going to put send into an application, I'm typically wanting to see public send. Unless there's a good reason, because there always could be. Do you know what that good reason might be? Mm, the good reason is we don't have another choice. It's not gotcha. the best reason, but yeah, you know, as push comes to shove, I've been known to get a little frisky with send before, but it's one of those, you got to do what you got to do situations. And I'm in the general, it's dangerous. So know what you're getting into if you're going to do it. Because you don't want to wake up one morning and your entire API is broken because whatever private method you were pulling from a gem or from Rails is no longer there. Yeah. Has that ever hurt you in the end? Not me. Like to me, it's something that has great power and it has great responsibility and great consequences. So I try to find another way. If I'm going to have to do something dangerous with it, if you're just using it with metaprogramming, then like use it away. That's what it's for. But if you're using it specifically to tap into something you shouldn't or that they're specifically trying to keep you from tapping into, because putting something in private, it's like, hey, this could change and we don't have to tell you. That's when I think about it. It's like, hey, I'm going to use private here because no method under this line is going to be used anywhere else. And that means I'm free to do with it whatever I want to. So dangerous. Oh, thanks. Yeah. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime should not be one. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute. A monthly subscription with HoneyBadger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which helps you stay in business. Get started today in as little as five minutes at HoneyBadger.io with plans starting at free. Yeah, you heard me, free. A big thank you to HoneyBadger for sponsoring this episode of Ruby for All. Our next object method is is a, which is also an alias for kind of. And what that does is it returns true if class is the class of objects. Okay, so when you call is, you pass it a class and then it will let you know if it is that class or not. By returning true or false. Here's an example for you. Let's say I give you a bunch of user records, but there's also another type of record in there. So you have a collection of records of objects and you don't know exactly what object is what, but you need to take a specific portion of those and do something with it. That's one place you could use is a. Is a user or is a admin, maybe, could be an example. If I... (laughs) wanted to call a component and I wanted to send in a specific set of options that's like, okay, margin left 10 pixels. But let's say I actually want it to be margin left 10 pixels on small screens, but then on medium, I want it 12 pixels. And on large, I want it 16 pixels. So instead of passing a string, I'm going to pass an array. And I just want, you know, my component will do what with that array, what it does. 
But if it is an array, my component knows it has to do something with it to turn it those names into something into the responsive classes. So if I pass an array, I want you to invoke this method and destructure uh-huh. these options and apply things and do all this logic. If it's a string, I just want you to pass it straight along. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes cool. sense. That's a good example. Is a is definitely will come in handy. It's hard to know when you're going to need is a. It's just one of those things that like. I don't know what this is supposed to be, but if it is this, I need to enable this action. If it is this. Another example is if you have a controller that is potentially doing something with two different types of records. So like maybe if the record it's using is a this, you want to enable these extra actions. If it's a sale, I then want to run these other actions. If it's a online sale, I want to do these. And so that's a one way to do that. Yeah, I like that. Cool. I did not know about itself until you put it on this list. I also put a note that says, why would we use this method? So clearly I needed some help trying to figure out when this would be used. (laughs) I'm not sure. There's almost like something in my brain that's like saying there might be some with timing attacks or something or like this or that, or like trying to figure out the state of records. Like to me, that's the only thing that my brain goes to first, but I truly don't know why you would exactly need it. But their example is what makes me think that where they set a string equal to my string and they do string.itself.objectid because every object in Ruby has an object ID. And then equal equals string.objectid that returns true. That example makes me think of like, that must be how they're using it in some way, or that's how someone uses it, right? Because they wrote that example. And to me, that's like comparing like the state of something with the current state, but I'm not really sure. So listeners, if you are listening and you happen to know or have used itself in practice, please let us know. We're very interested in when this would be used. Yes, I am definitely interested. The next one we have is respond to. I definitely use this one where you call respond to on an object and you'd be like, does this object respond to this method? It's not interchangeable to is a, but I think about it. It's one of those tools that I put in the same belt as is a where I'm like, okay, I have different types of objects. I can give you a great example of this one. I have different types of objects on my Bridgetown site. And if the object responds to a certain method, I want to include something specific. If it doesn't, the reason why I can't call it, I can't just do object.foo because that will create an exception. I need to do object.respond to foo because that will not create an exception if it does not exist. And even if you can't use a safe operator, That's like what I use. You can't use a safe operator and calling this creates an exception, but I need to know if this object has access to this method. And if it does, I need to do something different or business logic, et cetera, et cetera. That's when you would use respond to. That's where I use it at least. Oh, I guess it is you figure out what the object is and maybe do something to it. Whereas respond to is like, you want to do something to it, but you need to know first if it responds to it, let's say it was an object that doesn't respond to is asking the question, does this object have access to this method? Okay. And that can tell you maybe the type of object, but maybe that's not what's important. What's important is that if it has access to that method, that you do something. And if it doesn't have access to that method, you do something else. Okay. That's a good one. It's one of those things where you're like trying to figure out what's up, what's happening here. What is this? What does this respond to? What is it? That's why I kind of put it in the same pocket. Cool. The next one is dot methods. I use this constantly. 
in your app code? Debugging. Only debugging. Okay. I'm commonly trying to figure out what method I can call. Because sometimes you have an object and you know there is a method, right? That you know it's somewhere. So object.methods will return a list of all the methods that are available to that object. You can call variations of that to get different things like public methods, public instance methods. And, you know, there's a whole bunch more similar things to dot methods you can call. But one thing I usually do is I'll do like string.methods.grep and I'll grep for what I think the method might be named, what I might name it, this or that. And it's basically my way of figuring out the thing I need. If you have an active record object and you're like, okay, well, there's some method on this that I need to find. I know it has something to do with sales and this and that. And that might be an easier way to find it than like maybe grepping through your code base or something. It's like, okay, object.methods and then see what it has access to. Sorry, I got put a note here that says pass false will give you singleton methods on that class. Do you ever pass it anything when you call it? I have never okay. passed it. I did not know you could do that. Because you can call dot singleton methods. That's a method as well. So okay. no, I've not done that. That is interesting. Yeah, there's also things you can use like checking if instance variables are defined, removing, setting instance variables. If I'm trying to figure out what class thing to use, what class is being called, what the class does, where it's coming from. I'm in my Rails console in Pry and I'm using dot methods usually at first class. Like I'll call that, just see what's going on and then start to narrow it down. Got it. Next one we got is dot tap. There's like a very specific thing in my brain for when to use this and that's tapping into parameters in your Rails strong params. But what it does is it yields self to the block and then returns self. The primary purpose of this method is to tap into a method chain in order to perform operations on the intermediate results within the chain. So you could do something like if you have an array and then you call 2a on it, or if you have a range and you call dot 2a to it, then you can call dot tap and do something. And then you can call dot select and maybe whittle that down array even more, call dot tap, do something with it. And it's basically a way to, like it says, tap into a method chain to perform some operations. So when I have used this in the past, it's when you have, you're doing your params.require and then you're listing your things as params, but maybe at the very end of it, you actually want to do something with one of those params. Maybe you don't want to send a certain param or maybe you want to change the value of a param or add a new param. So you can tap into the params after you've required and added all the things and then say, if this param value is this, set this other one to this, or add a new param value if this certain thing is true, or do this. That's when I've used it in the past of like, okay, I need to tap into the end of this to change some form of data before Rails takes this forward. So two things. Can we just briefly explain what strong params are or does? And then Two, I can, I'm still trying to understand what tap does. I'm having a time grasping that. Strong parameters is something that was introduced in like Rails 4, I believe, where basically in your Rails controllers, you typically say params.requireSale.permit and then you list the attributes. And Rails will not allow anything that you don't permit to come through. So it's saying... We're going to disregard every parameter you send into this controller, except for these ones that you are specifically permitting. If one of the params I'm permitting is status and it comes across a certain way, what if there's actually some validations on my end? 
I don't want your sale to be active until I've ran these checks to make sure it's not fraudulent and that it's not this and it's not that. And maybe if it is one of those things, I don't want the set the state to be different. Now there's different ways to do this, but one way you could do it is tap into the params and change that state if a certain condition is met. Because you can tap into something by giving it a block, which yields self to the block and returns self. This one's hard to explain because I don't have a lot of examples other than that params one. And that params one's hard to wrap your head around unless you've had to do something similar of where params are coming in, but you actually want to change one on the fly or add new ones on the fly. But if you haven't had to do that, that's the only example I've got in my head. Other than the examples they've got on the Ruby docs, which is just, it calls something, it does something, and then it goes to the next part of the chain. Yeah, I think it's going to be one of those ones for me where I just need to open up IRB and play around with what it's doing and try out the examples. Yeah. At least to start. Yeah. Maybe I showed you my code example. It would make more sense. But since we can't show the listeners, picture a world, right? (laughs) But I don't use that one that much. I'm sure there's a lot of other things to do with it, but that's the only time I've ever used it. The next one, I believe you put this down, but I have been using it in my recent side project. Time dot, and I don't know how to pronounce that or if you just spell it out. S-T-R-F time. Strift time? I call it S-T-R-F time. Oh, okay. S-T-R-F I don't know if people call it other things, but uh, with my brain where it is, I look at that, I'm like, it's there for time. S-T-R-F time. It's good. It's done. Ship it. <laughs> That's fair. This is a good so one. It formats time according to the directives in the given format string. Yes. The directives yes. begin with the percent character. Yep. Explaining the directives is like a whole other podcast. I don't know anyone who remembers them off the top of their head except for the big ones. But it's basically a specific pattern. And this pattern is not just used in Ruby. This is a pattern that you'll find all over the place implemented. Usually in the same similar-ish way that Ruby implements it, where you have certain symbols that represent certain aspects of the date time. And STRF time is a way to pass in the format that you want that date to be and return a string. And there's a lot of websites actually that exist where if you type in like Ruby STRF time generator or builder or something like that, there's actually ones that will allow you to actually build the time string that you want or visualize the time string that you want and it will generate for you. I don't know anyone who remembers how to do all of it by <laughs> hand. Like I know some of them. Some of them are easy, right? Like month is M. But if capital M is the minute of the hour, lowercase m is the month of the year. So there's like capitals, lowercase, percent signs, all this formatting. Basically, it's a way to format dates. Yeah, there's a really nice resource for this at for a good strftime.com, which I yep. used for my project to build Specifically, I had something that said today is, and then I wanted a specific way to format my date where I would say today is Tuesday, February, spelt out, not shortened. There's so many things that you can do, like shorten February to Feb or keep it long. And then where I wanted the ordering of the month, day, and year. And do I want the year shortened? So you can actually build that out on that webpage and it'll tell you the format of how you should put it in inside of that method or pass it into the method. That one's really nice. So Rails has something called formatted strings. And the way you call it changed pre-Rails 7. But in Rails 7, if I have a date time, if I do time.zone.now, that's like 
where I'm at. If I call it dot two underscore FS or dot two underscore formatted S as in formatted string, you can pass it a symbol and Rails has a list of predefined date formats that it saves and that you can also add to if you want to. So if you did like time.zone.now.2fs and you pass db, it would return specific form. If you pass short, time, long, ordinal, ISO 8601. So there's specific formats that Rails has built in. And Andy Kroll has actually a website called railsdatetimeformats.com, which we will put in the show notes, which has a list of some of them. I'm assuming all of them that are in Rails and you can add your own. So that's something I've done too, of like, hey, I always format my dates a certain way. I'm tired of passing in this date time format string. I'm not going to tell you how to do it right off the top of my brain, but there's a way in Rails that, hey, I want to add to this list of formats. I'm pretty sure it's like in a YAML config file that you can add. But yeah, that's the thing. Nice. It's cool. Last one. So this was helpful in a Code Warriors challenge. I'm not sure when it would be used in practice, but integer.digits returns an array of integers representing that number. So if I had one, two, three, and I called dot digits on it, it will return an array of the digits, but in backwards. So it would return three, two, one. I have never seen this before. This is really interesting. Oh. Huh. Can you think of an example of when you would use it? Nope. <laughs> I cannot, <laughs> but maybe someone else out there can. Probably number stuff, especially because you can pass in the base, like base 10, base two, like if you want to get into binary math, maybe, I don't know. I don't want to think about binary math anymore. It was a dark time. (laughs) Cool. Well, I think that's it for us. This wraps up our February series. Thank you everyone for joining us on this journey. Maybe we'll have to do another series like this again. I had fun doing a shorter series type thing to kind of break up what we've been doing. I thought it was fun. Yeah, me too. And I learned so much. So thanks for joining me and learning with me. Thank you for this amazing idea. Listeners, thank you for listening. And I think we'll catch you all next week. Bye. Bye, everyone.